0: edition of USFL football from historic Wembley Stadium in London England the USFL champion Philadelphia stars play the Tampa Bay bandits and good afternoon everyone I'm Jim Simpson in 1948 this stadium hosted the first post-war Olympic Games I was here in 1966 when all England went wild and why not in their kind of football we call it soccer they won the coveted World Cup defeating West Germany in overtime But now we've come full cycle from the World Cup to an exhibition of USFL football. And as always with me, with these telecasts, Paul McGuire. Paul, season's over. Stars have won the championship. Tampa Bay's out of the playoffs. They don't play again until next year. But here they are in England. Now, how do you get yourself ready for a game like this that really means not too much, except you might get hurt? Well, first of all, the players love to come over here because they go to another country and they get a chance to see another part of the world. The big thing... for the number one units, starting offensive defense, they know it's gonna be an easy day because they're gonna play maybe one quarter. So that's not too bad. Where the war begins is when you start playing a second and third team, Jim. These are guys that are gonna play for the, maybe some of them for the first time. To show coaches, there's a long time between now and spring. And I've got to believe that they want to show the coaches something that they're going to leave in the memories of the coaching staff. Say, hey, I can play on this football team, and maybe, just maybe, I can play first string. Are you predicting a war at Wembley? (laughs) I hope so. i like to see that.
1: Welcome to Good Seats
0: Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, now, isn't this a fine kettle of fish? How are you, everybody? I am uh, back from extended vacation, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to the proceedings. My name is Tim Hanlon, and it is Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for sticking with us and coming on by this week. And uh, let's uh, get uh, into the gridiron spirit, shall we, Uh, as the NFL preseason Uh, is uh, effectively uh, underway. Uh, College uh, right around the corner as well. Um, But we're going to take a different uh, sort of perspective on the pro football game Uh, this week with our guest Ben Isaacs uh, as we go to the UK and in uh, in Great Britain, uh, England in particular to be exact. And we are going to talk about the American game through the lens of the British viewer, the British fan, uh, and uh, we've kind of uh, danced around uh, some of the international uh, dalliances uh, of the NFL and pro football generally uh, over the years, and its various attempts. and And we certainly know now uh, that uh, the American game is very uh, much in play as the NFL looks towards uh, expanding uh, itself beyond the borders of the United States. Uh, into other lands. Certainly Mexico City has been uh, rumored to be a place eventually for a franchise, and certainly London, England as a potential place for such. Uh, And we're going to talk about that with Ben, who was the uh, author uh, of the uh, brand new book, uh, which is uh, an excellent read. I highly recommend it, called The American Football Revolution, How Britain Fell in Love with the NFL. And it it is a discussion that kind of talks about sort of the history of the game, uh, in the UK, in Britain, uh, and a little bit in Europe generally, uh, and where it is today. Obviously, uh, a, a at least uh, a few games now uh, going to uh, London and, and elsewhere uh, in England, and certainly um, we have seen numerous exhibitions, uh, and even that now, frankly, regular season games, uh, a regular staple. Uh, will that rise to the level of a Uh, an expansion franchise someday, perhaps. We talk about that. We also talk about, though, the interesting history of the game uh, as uh, it uh, relates to uh, the the origin story, Um, uh, the initial foray in the 1970s of some exhibition games. Uh, The clip that you just heard, the 1984 long lost and long forgotten exhibition game in London at the old Wembley Stadium that you just heard. Uh, on ESPN, July 21st, 1984, after the uh, the week after the conclusion of the second season of the USFL, the then uh, uh, champion Philadelphia Stars playing the Tampa Bay Bandits uh, in front of uh, over 21,000 there at Old Wembley Stadium. Uh, the Jet Save Challenge Cup was what they were playing for, and Jim Simpson and Paul McGuire calling. All of that action, I'm I'm just going to let you find it on YouTube to find out who won that game. And I will tell you it was a thriller, albeit an exhibition. Uh, but that was certainly a palette cl- uh, setter, if you will, uh, for uh, what then became uh, a topic that we've talked about on a couple of different occasions, the London Monarchs and this thing called the World League of American Football, later to be known as NFL Europe and NFL Europa, which was essentially Uh, the National Football League's multiple or multi-pronged attempt uh, to bring the pro game, some level of competitive pro game, to Europe and other places around the world, and then uh, more specifically just Europe. Uh, And that was a 1990s uh, and early 2000s endeavor. And and, uh, what has replaced it since has been exhibitions and now regular scheduled regular season games, and who knows what comes uh, after that. We get into all of those things in our fun conversation with Ben Isaacs uh, in just a few moments' time. Stick around for it. You will enjoy it. And let's celebrate not only our return from vacation, uh, but uh, this uh, particular topic. Um, The World League of American Football and NFL Europe, NFL Europa, does make a few appearances in our upcoming chat. And uh, two great places, two great sponsors uh, to uh, commemorate (laughs) that in this episode uh, are uh, yours uh, for the taking. And please visit early and often, why don't you, to our pals at 417helmets.com. It's collectible helmets and more. Promo code good seats for 10% off all of your purchases. And yes, mini helmets, not only custom helmets and, and all kinds of other leagues and stuff, but yes. The London Monarchs, the Scottish Claymores, which we'll be talking about, uh, represented in beautiful and high-quality mini helmet form. Judd Lesher, uh, the proprietor of 417helmets.com, has a wide array of of stuff for you to choose from. Uh, And uh, you can check them out and uh, all those items at 417helmets.com. Again, promo code GOODSEATS. And when you're done there, head over to our friends at royalretros.com. That's our pal Dustin Alameda. Uh, out in the Portland, Oregon area. Royal Retros, of course, as you know, is the king of throwbacks. And we've got a promo code for you there. And that seats S-E-A-T-S, 10% of all of your purchases there. And what will you find there? But you'll find shirts and handcrafted and customizable authentic jerseys from NFL Europa and the World League of American Football, including said Scottish Claymores and London Monarchs. Uh, But of course, if you just have a Jones for uh, the Frankfurt Galaxy or the Barcelona Dragons or the Orlando Thunder or the San Antonio Riders or the beloved New York, New Jersey Knights and and others, uh, you'll find them there as well. And again, that's RoyalRetros.com. Promo code SEATS, 10% off all of your purchases at the King of Throwbacks there. Thank you, Dustin, and thank you, Judd, for your sponsorship of the show. Thanks for checking them out. Thanks for giving us a couple of referral shekels of love when you make a purchase or two there. And thank you, of course, for listening continuously to now our upcoming episode conversation with Ben Isaacs. Let's talk about American football, UK and Britain style. Here's our conversation we had just last week. Please, as always, enjoy.
1: When I got my first job, which was in 2000, my first as in proper job post-university, I used to spend quite a lot of time at lunchtimes eating my food and reading a USFL message board. And it was just people talking about their memories of the USFL. And I really wanted to read that because it felt so exotic because we'd had access to the NFL and you had bits of the USFL in Magazines over here, British American football magazines, but it wasn't really on TV here, and it was just the idea of this kind of parallel universe that was happening alongside the NFL that we didn't get to see. so by two thousand, there seemed like there were kind of communities of usFL fans talking about their memories and pictures and I just found it absolutely fascinating. I think it's it's the idea of the parallel universe for me because we didn't. We, we couldn't see it. We couldn't find out much about it, and, you know, pre-internet. How could you have researched the USFL, you know, in the in the UK? It would have been impossible.
0: Well, how did you even kind of really know about it? And then maybe what kind of, you know, uh, made you kind of look for
1: it, so to speak, online? Um, well, there would, there would be little bits in our magazines, but just not enough that if even if you'd said to me in the late 90s, Let's say before I got the internet at home, what were those? What what were the teams in the USFL? I couldn't I couldn't have told you. Um, and then I'm a I'm a huge um, Chicago Bears fan, and I was writing something for like the UK f- fan club newsletter about other teams that had been in Chicago, and this was about ninety eight ninety nine, and just kind of going down a rabbit hole of um, arena football and USFL and the WFL the the original Chicago Fire um, and just finding just finding out there was all this there was all this stuff out there that I that I didn't know about and I just being a kind of American football history nerd it just it just really appealed to me I just wanted to even just even just kind of looking at like old clips looking at the pictures looking at how the uniforms were different the idea of you know like the idea of like a, a, you know a team in Oakland wearing um, completely different colors to the Raiders. Just, it seemed strange. It seemed off brand for the entire city. Um, and just, just the, the, the more I, the more I could see about it, the more fascinated I was. I, you know, I'm, I really love the, the kind of the weird aesthetics of different, of different leagues. And just because the NFL has become so homogenized, seeing those, Seeing those things that have gone in the past and seeing those different, different teams and different brands, it's just it's just seemed so exotic. Whereas the NFL I'd got so used to, even though it was, you know, thousands of miles away, it's it soon didn't feel exotic to me. It was very much a part of my life. But anything else that was exotic.
0: Well, let's back up for a second. So how, how does like American football sort of hit your radar, you know, as a, as a fan, I'm guessing, right? And becoming a nerd, if you will, or, or, or you know, reading American football magazines, right? It seems it, like it, you kind of grew up with sort of this uh, exoticism uh, kind of underlining your, your interest in this sport. I mean, and maybe you can juxtapose that with how one in the UK and Europe uh, generally perhaps Uh, becomes interested in the sport in the first place given i'm guessing a relatively small window of ability or or television or only just the nfl that kind of stuff
1: yeah it's um it's a very specific moment in time for people of my age um who got into the nfl and it was when um a new tv channel launched in the uk a terrestrial network called channel four so This is, cable was a very, very small thing in the UK until the mid-90s, really. Satellite TV kind of arrived in the late 80s. And really, until 1982, you had three TV channels. And they would often stop broadcasting at certain points during the day. And Channel 4 was launched as a weird hybrid between the BBC, which is completely a public service broadcaster. There is no advertising on the BBC In the UK, it is all funded by the public. You pay pay an annual license fee. If you own a television and you watch live television, you have to pay a license fee, and that money goes to the BBC. And then you have commercial channels such as ITV, which was around at the time, which was um, completely supported by advertising. And then Channel 4 was both, in that it was advertising, but also it had a public service remit and had some public money. And the idea of it was it should cater to niches that weren't being catered to and that might mean things in the arts or other areas of the news that weren't being covered but they were also told they had to cover sport, but sport costs money unless you buy obscure very very cheap sport and in like as the 80s went on channel 4 also started broadcasting sumo wrestling and Kabaddi, which is very popular in India and not at all popular in other countries. But in 1982, when they launched, they started showing NFL highlights every Sunday afternoon. And there was one problem that when Channel 4 launched, it was in the middle of the NFL player strike. Games were not taking place, but they could just show highlights from the start of the season because nobody, nobody would be able to know. There was no way, unless you had a, a friend or a relative in america who you were speaking to on the phone you were not finding out those results so we used to get in the 80s on sunday afternoons basically 6 p.m uk time which is the time that the early window uh, games kick off in the nfl in america so wherever you know wherever you are that might be 1 p.m depending on your location we would get highlights from the previous week so those would be old old games to to you guys you've already you know you're familiar and you're you're watching you're watching the following weeks but we had no other frame of reference so i first saw some of the nfl in 1984 i was 6 years old it was it was starting to become a thing it was colorful it looked exciting um it seemed At that point, it seemed exotic to me. It was very different to how if you watched, there was not a lot of soccer on TV at that point. Um, In fact, there'd been a dispute between the broadcasters and the Football League. So there were no live games on. Um, And you would watch a game on TV and the field would look like it was just more mud than grass. Um, Not many people were there in comparison with what there is today um there was a lot of violence in the stadiums um you would not generally as a family go to watch a soccer match in the uk at that point it just seemed it was it was like british sport was in black and white and the nfl was in color that's how it felt at that time so i started watching it i had i had no concept of what was going on it just it looked exciting and it was spectacular and I just kind of fell for it. And if I remembered on a Sunday, I would make a point of watching. The first team I ever saw was the Chicago Bears. And I just kind of watched little bits and pieces in 84, 85. And then as an irresponsible child, I stayed up and watched some of Super Bowl 20. And I remember vividly thinking, I could not have picked a better team in the Chicago Bears. They're just going to win every Super Bowl forever. Um, This is the greatest team ever created, and I will. There will never, there will never be a downside to any of this. And obviously, decades later, I'm still, I'm still waiting for another Super Bowl victory. But it, it, it had really many here in the
0: Chicago area where I live. uh, Certainly, do Justin Fields literally lives the quarterback now for the Chicago Bears? Literally lives a stone's throw from where I, where I live right now. And uh, the, the hope is ever-lasting and ever-eternal.
1: Oh, please, Lord. um, Justin Fields, I'm putting a lot of hope in him. Maybe he's listening. Maybe he's a big, maybe he's a big fan of the podcast and he's listening. Um, But I I was, I was one of just many uh, in all sorts of age ranges who became hooked in the 1980s by the NFL. It was an absolute phenomenon here in the uk at that point well so so i'm sorry describe that for me for a second
0: so uh, a lot of what you just described almost makes it seem like there was a a a need for alternative tv programming and the nfl among other things kind of fit Uh, can you describe kind of what these things were i mean you you say highlights uh how much live game action were you seeing aside from the super bowl if any um how are you feeding uh, feeding your interest so to speak
1: um we would have one live game per season the super bowl so it was it was a little bit tricky watching the super bowl because you're used to seeing everything so condensed um and a lot of people in the uk their feeling was why is this game stopping so much why are there so many ad breaks because we were not getting that with the highlights so that was that was tough There sprung up a whole cottage industry at this point um we in the 1980s We had three monthly American football magazines, um, kind of glossy magazines produced here in the UK, written by a combination of UK writers and American writers. Uh, One was called Gridiron, one was called Touchdown, one was called Quarterback, which had an official NFL license. I would buy those every month. I was obsessed. Um, By January 1987, we had a weekly newspaper called First Down, which ran for decades um, as as a as a weekly, um, it, you know, it had all the kind of game reports and all the news. Um, so many publishers were bringing out books that would be kind of a beginner's guide to American football or profiles of the star players. The, the, the kind of supporting media kind of filled in the gaps because all we had w- was 60 to 90 minutes of highlights once a week at that point um, and a Super Bowl at the end of it so you needed to buy buy your books buy your magazines so that you could so that you had something to you know read and absorb when the when the season when the season wasn't happening how
0: about videotapes Was there any kind of like uh, uh, underground uh, channels for you know uh, for that kind of stuff and and in the highlights i'm really curious were they packaged by the nfl or were they revoiced if you will by uh, by British uh, announcers. like So NFL Films, obviously legendary uh, arm of that. Were you getting those or were you getting some kind of American television package or was it stuff that was pre- b- better uh, suited for the uh, the British audience?
1: So what would happen is, is that um, Channel 4 would basically get to pick what they wanted as their main highlights game of that week. They would get access to the entire U- US broadcast and they would then... Uh, keep the keep the u.s announcers but would have um usually have a uk presenter frank gifford out of the blue frank gifford was the host for one season uh in 1986 and he must have done that from the u.s and it was just then sent over to the uk uh, for broadcast but usually you had a uk host who would try to demystify things a little bit but basically it was just cut up bits of the original US TV broadcast. We didn't change the announcers. It wasn't the it wasn't the NFL Films highlights. It was just bits of the what you would have watched on NBC or CBS or ABC um, that week. In terms of videotapes, I know there was a a grey market in the 1990s that I don't believe was popular in the 1980s, but there was a there was a tiny bit of it around. It was very niche where people would. People in the US would illegally be distributing um, full games um, to the UK. Now, the problem is, is that at that point, your VHS tapes recorded on your TVs wouldn't have worked on our VCRs on our TVs. So it wasn't it wasn't a straightforward process. Someone would have to convert those and duplicate them. That was a very, very small part of it. Um, we did used to get from Vestron Video, we would get NFL Films videos from the kind of mid 80s onwards i had a few of those they were kind of i I imagine these were kind of classic ones that um people in the u.s had as well um the there was one the nfl's greatest quarterbacks um there was one about the greatest running backs it was called the nfl's greatest runners there was one called crunch time that was pro football's hardest hitters and i had um the official film of the 85 chicago bears these were all official nfl films releases that you could buy and that they used to come with posters uh my bedroom wall was just covered with covered with posters anything any 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 nfl player they would be up on my wall um and in terms of the merchandise we would be able to get there were there was a lot of merchandise that was um official from the nfl that was clearly created specifically for the uk market it's it wasn't stuff that was on sale um, in the U.S., uh, in the uh, in my book, there's a there's a chapter where I'm talking to um, a man called Dan Turl, and Dan Turl knows just everything about the merchandise. Uh, it's basically been his passion to kind of collect the media and merchandise of the early days of Channel Four broadcasting the NFL, and I can tell you, Tim, the quality of the merchandise was terrible. Like everything would just fall apart. But everybody wanted it. It was, not, it was not high specification. But if it had the right logos on and had the teams, people were just lapping it up. But you only had 10 or 12 teams that the NFL actually promoted over here. So if somehow you decided you were a fan of, um, let's say, the Green Bay Packers, you couldn't buy any merchandise in the UK. None of it was for sale. If you like the Chicago Bears and New York Giants on some other teams, then you were fine. You could go into supermarkets, you could go into department stores, and you would find racks of this stuff, especially for kids. Um, even though adults were very much watching it, it seemed that a lot of the merchandise was for kids. And then everybody it seemed that every every supermarket and shop and every retailer wanted to jump on this bandwagon so they would produce they would produce things that were american football themed and usually you could tell that this was put together by someone who would perhaps watch 20 minutes of of it on tv and thought yeah i can draw that had no real concept of how it all worked but you would walk into somebody's bedroom like mine in the 1980s and it would just be covered with official NFL things and things that were just meant to be generic American football lampshades or cushions or bedspreads, that sort of thing. You could get so much. And it really felt like a like a a golden age because it all felt so new. It felt so exciting. And what we didn't know is that in a few years the the bubble was going to burst. And the NFL would be in a in a pretty bad place, but at that point, it just felt that the sky was the limit.
0: Well, there there are a couple of things here. So in your book, you do talk about uh, how the '80s were kind of essentially kind of a, if you will, an underground boom time for the NFL, and then you sort of mention the '90s, which I want to kind of get into because that's actually when actual real American football, quote unquote, starts to kind of uh, hit the scene. But but from a fashion perspective and from a um, a merchandise perspective, it's uh, it, it it almost mimics I think uh, growing up as a kid here in the states, uh, the the NFL merchandise stuff right was really kind of a I don't know a yearly catalog kind of thing. Maybe you'd see some posters and stuff in in Sports Illustrated here, Sears, Robuck, a big you know former large uh, department store here in the United States would have you know tons of NFL kids merchandise in their in their catalog and stuff. But the NFL catalog was its own sort of exotic thing. It was sort of like you you mailed away to some point, Minnetonka, Minnesota, I think it is, or was. And uh, you'd get sort of like this 32-page thing, and that was kind of it. You didn't sort of see a whole lot of um, stuff. So I think maybe this also somewhat mimics uh, maybe the uh, uh, the merchandising uh, realization of, of the NFL and pro sports generally. But w- w- describe to me, though, in the 80s, before we sort of get into the 90s, uh, what was actually being doled out uh, in, in reality on the ground there? Because there were a couple of uh, exhibitions, I do believe, like the, the, what this sort of cockamamie preseason thing called the World Bowl and that kind of stuff. Um, it was how the, much? Yeah, it was
1: called the American Bowl. American Bowl. Um, yeah, we had – so the, the very first NFL game played here was, I think, 1983. It was the Cardinals against the Vikings, and it was called the Global Cup and it was a massive flop it wasn't organized by the nfl it wasn't promoted by the nfl it was a private businessman here in the here in the uk um, with the game sponsored by a short-lived missouri based airline and i think they sold about 30,000 tickets in a stadium that held about 100,000 people so that was that was not good but you can see why someone at that point would think oh this is big that 1982 1983 have happened The NFL is becoming bigger. Let's put a game on. The NFL waited until um, preseason 86 and they brought over the Bears and the Dallas Cowboys and that sold out quickly. That was a big deal. And you had a few years of those games being a big deal that this is an NFL game. We know it's preseason, but we're going to go. And eventually, after a few years, it just people started to started to say, why why am I watching Dan Marino take three snaps and seeing a load of backups? I don't want to see this. This is boring. And that's, I'm sure, how lots of people feel about, about preseason. You know, if for people who watch NFL preseason now, I do hope they're watching it because they want to see, oh, what's going on with the third string tight end? Can he catch on? Um is there a quarterback battle developing for the backup position? If you're watching it for those reasons, fine. But if you're watching it because you want to see the stars, and this is how the game would be promoted here, you'd see here's John Montana and Dan Marino and John Elway, and then you'd get to the game and you'd see them play five minutes. That's when things started to go, um, started to go downhill for the American Bowl. I should also say, for people who don't know, because it's, it is not very well known, even the USFL played an exhibition game in the UK, they played a game at Wembley that if the, if the Vikings Cardinals game was a flop, this was an even bigger flop. Um, when, when was this? I don't,
0: we've had a number of USFL conversations. I don't think anybody even brought that up.
1: Um, it was, I believe after the, um, the very first USFL championship game and they played a postseason exhibition, which is a very strange concept of a, a postseason exhibition. Um, and that was something that I had no concept of that ever, of that ever happening. But it was um, it was Tampa Bay B- Bandits against the Philadelphia Stars, um, and from people I've spoken to throughout that game, it was a very good game, but it was it had next to no publicity over here. And I have wondered since that if they could have if they could have been playing because at that at that point the USFL seasons would kick off not long after the super bowl because obviously they were still playing that spring schedule and that with the uk so hungry for the sport that what if they had played a week 1 game here in the uk i think the usfl could have found a foothold surprisingly in the uk because the 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 fuss around the super bowl here was so big and then of course you've got so long without any of it on TV. And maybe if there had been a deal done that the USFL had been shown and they would play a game at Wembley to start the season, you could have had a very different USFL. You could have had something where maybe they were the first world league. Maybe they, maybe they decide let's find some investors in Europe and put together a European division. It's a strange kind of what if of history, but it's a, it's an obscure part of USFL history because I don't see a lot of coverage about it. There's, you can find the full game on YouTube, and you can see how empty the stands are.
0: Fascinating. I um, I, it's it's a really interesting sort of concept and stuff. And I, I'm also kind of trying to now. Obviously, you have to look at it through your lens of being a kid in the '80s, right? But in the early '90s, I think the the concept is like it's in retrospect, it just seems so almost borderline comical that uh, the money machine that is the NFL today, right, would not have discovered or thought through. Or try to engineer uh, some scenarios where uh, there could be more than just highlights and an occasional, you know, exhibition game. I mean, the cynicism uh, is not lost on on American soccer fans, for example, right? I mean, there's a reason why I don't pay, I don't know, 150 bucks to go see uh, half of the Premier League teams do their little summer exhibition tours here. Because it's the very same concept, right? I mean, you see some of the great stars and stuff, but, you know, they got all swapped out and stuff. It's, it's, it feels very less than than – I'd rather go to, you know, Wembley or go to a game, you know, in, uh, in, uh, in England and see the, see the two games there and, and, and pay the cost of travel to see a real game versus the watered-down version here in the States. But I, you can't be faulted for holding your nose at the less than product, I guess, so that you were being doled out.
1: Yeah. And what you've said is absolutely correct. The whole Premier League summer series, I think they like to call it where they just drag Premier League teams around large US soccer stadiums to either play each other um, or play a US team. And you, it's, it's the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing. You've got a market that is hungry for the sport, hungry to see the stars, and they're 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 gouged to see those stars make kind of a half-hearted effort because they're still just trying to get a fit for the season, obviously. So it is it is exactly the same for those for those U.S. soccer fans who are frustrated by that. That's that was us. That was us.
0: All right. So explain to me then, generally the 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 eighties and going into the nineties, and uh, in particular, I, I'm trying to get a sense of. Uh, how the highlights evolved into, I guess, more regular programming. And then I really want to get into, as you can imagine, this thing called the World League, originally, the World League of American Football, which was the NFL's head, uh, hat tip, if you will, to something growing in interest, not only in England, but in certain parts of Europe and across the globe as well.
1: Um, Yeah, so in the 80s, we got to a point... In 1987, where this, this felt like a huge, a huge deal to me, we would get highlights twice a week. And this felt fantastic because you would get highlights on a Tuesday evening. And the very first, the very first Tuesday evening highlights were uh, the Monday night football game that kicked off. Well, the first Monday night football game of the 87 season, the, uh, the, the Bears hosting the Giants. And we saw highlights the following day we'd never had anything like that all of a sudden it, everything felt that much more immediate we knew that tuesday we were going to get the biggest and best game a couple of days after it had happened which that felt like such a big deal but we would have we'd have your, you'd have your sunday game you'd have your tuesday game and eventually there was a little magazine package that would be on a saturday afternoon that would have highlights of other games it would kind of teach you more about the culture of the sport there would be kind of profiles of different cities in america and it was a it was a it was kind of a way in of trying to sort of it felt like a kind of very much a youth program of okay you might have a short retention span we're going to show you some exciting things it's not going to be Half an hour on one game, it's just gonna be lots of lots of quick hits. And that's that's basically what we had until the mid-90s when Sky Sports, the satellite broadcaster, came on. They would get at least one live game every Sunday. And that was massively massively significant. And Sky Sports have been a very valuable partner for the NFL. They've been a partner with them now for more than 25 years, showing live games every week and channel four started to fade away at that point because the you would see a live game and you would see the um um the the NFL films highlights midweek you would get that highlights package as well so combined with um first down and sky sports channel four started to fade in the mid-90s and that really felt like the end of an era um, and the sport was the sport was struggling in the country at that at that point, and NFL NFL Europe slash the World League was was a part of that.
0: All right. So describe that, and also maybe describe the sports scene uh, in the UK in particular, because this is sort of yeah. I'm trying to remember exactly when the quote unquote Premier League was sort of uh, uh, reconstituted, but um, i just want to get a general sense of what the sports scene was uh, as well, and where this world league of american football and the london monarchs in particular we can get to the scottish claymores later but uh sort of fit into that landscape because there's an exoticism still around this this game of pro football but i gotta think a lot of people I, were a mixed emotions about this because here it was real games in a real league sanctioned by the the big one, the the nfl right but uh, a recognition That perhaps this wasn't, quote-unquote, the real thing because it wasn't the actual NFL.
1: You're absolutely right to bring up um, the Premier League, and we're just going to have to pronounce it differently and accept that. Um, So you can't look at the developments of the NFL in the UK during the 1990s without looking at it through the prism of soccer. And the first big moment was the 1990 World Cup, which... Um, England and Scotland both qualified England got to the semi-finals, and many football fans just fell in love with the sport again where they they had really been turned off by it but it was an exciting team they were unlucky not to make the World Cup final all of a sudden interest started to grow in the sport again and behind the scenes in the business of soccer People had started to put two and two together and felt that if if the product was marketed better, if, the, if it was packaged better, it would be massively popular again. And that culminated in the launch of the Premier League in 1992, which was basically just a rebranding of the top division of English soccer because it still had the same relegation and promotion. The systems have always been in place. But it meant that the teams in the top division at any one time would have a greater say and a greater share in how money was distributed and the decisions that were made. And almost overnight, again, partly through to Sky Sports coverage of the, of the Premier League, perception of the sport changed massively. And whereas American football was the thing for lots of kids of a certain age, and plenty of adults but i think mostly the the kids who were not growing up going to watch soccer all of a sudden there was more of it on tv and it was glitzy and exciting in comparison with how it had been so one interesting quirk at this point was that um, because all of this was on sky sports which was is a pay tv channel you've got to pay a subscription um, You know, you can't you can't watch live Premier League football for free legally in the UK. And that's how it has been since day one. Um, You can only watch highlights for free. So Channel 4, again, looking for those more niche things, decided to buy the rights to the Italian Football League, which at that point was the Premier League of its day. It was the most glamorous. It was the richest. It attracted the best players. And that became a massive part of saturday afternoons for lots of people across the uk they might watch the italian match and then they would watch the english match of the week but what that meant was that whereas the nfl used to be channel four's thing and the nfl used to be cool the nfl wasn't cool anymore italian football was cool and nba basketball was cool not because you could easily watch nba basketball in the uk there were it was on sky sports but at inconvenient times but because the barcelona olympics and the dream team had put the coolness of basketball out there people in the uk kind of fell for the concept of basketball the music the fashions without really being that interested in the sport and it just made the made the nfl just look to british eyes just a bit old-fashioned it was slow it was it was just a, it just felt like it couldn't match the excitement of basketball and soccer and you had this strange moment where the nfl had gone from being very cool to the absolute opposite and within that moment in time the the people i was going to say the nfl it's not strictly just the nfl but the world league of american football was launched and even though um, I think the first European office for the NFL, foreign office in Europe, was in London. London was the final European city to be selected. Barcelona and Frankfurt were selected well before they decided on there being a team in London. And there was excitement among hardcore NFL fans this was a you know in in the pages of first down every week there would be you know what's the latest news on the London Monarchs you know a helmet is revealed and the jerseys are revealed and some players start being allocated and who's going to be the coaches it was a it was a kind of drip feed of information and it culminated in a phenomenally successful first season for the London Monarchs both on and off the field Wembley Stadium was generally packed there was um a weekly highlights program um, on Saturday mornings. Um, But it turned out that those stadiums were full because most of the tickets were just given away. So the stadiums were full. It looked fantastic on TV. London won the first world bowl. And for the hardcore fans, it felt like this could be, this could be the start of something. Um, But obviously we know it wasn't and the, the league only lasted two seasons and, in the second season, with the London Monarchs doing poorly, people were not even taking up the free tickets. Um, people did not want to pay because they felt that this was something you know you know how it is just um, in supply and demand. If you're constantly giving something away for free when it's a when it's a good product quote unquote from that first season, why are people going to pay for a bad product the second season? So crowds dwindled. Um the London Monarchs had a terrible season and the plug was pulled on the league. And a lot of a lot of people in the UK who were American football fans thought, well that's that. The sport's done in this country. We should move on. They started they sorry, they kept playing American bowl games, but those were getting less and less popular every time. And it was clear that this was it was all dying, to be honest, Tim. It just felt like the league was dying. It had become an irrelevance by say nineteen ninety-three. I
0: gotta ask, were you in the stands for any of those games in those first two years?
1: <sighs> no. I if if I had been living in London at the time like I do now, I'm sure I would have. And I I really wished that I that I could have gone. I wished at the time and now talking to people who were there, I really wish I could have had that experience because it sounded absolutely wild. It sounded like it was a party in the stands for every for every game. And it felt like you were on the ground floor of something, which felt really special for those people who were there for like, the inaugural season. They were hoping this is going to be something that's going to last for decades. And that certainly, certainly there were people thinking, well, if this goes really well, can the London Monarchs enter the NFL? And the idea of you know, being there at the beginning is quite, quite intoxicating. Sadly, I didn't get to see any of them.
0: Yeah, you were only 30 years ahead of your time with that idea. But, um, you know, I think we're now at the precipice where that actually may be a possibility because uh, that's the NFL can only really grow by going internationally. And I guess the real question is, and I'm not sure the <clears throat> World League and then the subsequent NFL Europa um, uh, really answered the question, but uh, you know, logistically, how does that work or how could that work? Because um, the travel is just—it's uh, insane within the United States, let alone trying to then add, you know, uh, cross uh, uh, ocean travel and all that kind of stuff, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, when when teams come over here to play regular season games, um, there's always a debate. Some will come over at the last minute and will try to stay on U.S. time. Some will come over a week ahead and acclimatize or attempt to acclimatize. Straight away, and there's there's no perfect solution. Even when you're coming for a week, um, I would imagine if it if it did ever happen, you'd have to have it where um, there were kind of extended road trips. So a team from London would have to kind of play four road games in a row, so they could just base themselves there. Logistically, it doesn't it it doesn't make sense. Financially, it makes a lot of sense for the NFL. But you're absolutely right. There was it's it's not like it's not like the World League presented us with any, with any answers to that. If anything, it just presented more questions.
0: All right. What's this? 417 helmets. My goodness. Well, you've heard me talk about 417 helmets.com collectible helmets and more on this, uh, very show, uh, fairly often our pal Judd Lesher down in uh, southwest Missouri, I think in the Springfield, Missouri area, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it, what is it? 417helmets.com. Well, first, if you dig uh, all of our great football stories and episodes of the past, and you'd like to commemorate some of them in mini helmet form, really cool, sort of literal, high quality, professionally you know made materials, but in a mini format that you could put on your desk or uh, put on your uh, in your bookshelf or whatever it is uh, and just about every league that's ever existed save from the NFL uh, we're talking XFL uh, old versions of uh, the WFL remember the World Football League how about various teams both current and past in the Canadian Football League but also NCAA teams of your and NAIA college football teams of your, all of them and many 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 more Available for you at 417helmets.com. But, oh, that's not it. That's not it, friends. There's plenty more to be had. How about mini baseball helmets? Yeah, uh, a whole bunch in the Negro Leagues. And, yes, officially licensed by the Negro League Hall of Fame. You can get a bunch, and they're making more uh, all the time. And, by the way, custom helmets can be made, too, both of the baseball and the football variety. You got your uh, your business, uh, yeah, maybe a promotional thing you want to do for your company, uh, perhaps your organization, you want to raise some funds, all that kind of stuff. Great custom approaches to both mini football and mini baseball helmets can be made uh, at uh, your uh, command uh, for uh, uh, you to enjoy and to sell or resell or give away. All of that and more. That's the more part at 417helmets.com. It's collectible helmets. And more. And uh, we've got a promo code for you, too, for whatever you purchase, all of them, all of your purchases, 10% off all of those uh, when you use the promo code Good Seats. Again, promo code Good Seats for 10% off all of your purchases at 417helmets.com. Thanks, Judd, and uh, thank you all for listening and trying them out. And now back to our conversation. The reconstitution then of the uh, attempt, right? The NFL Europe was now the new name, and then it ultimately became sort of NFL Europa. Through, I guess, it was what two thousand six, two thousand seven, or so. Mm-hmm. Um, from a from a, a a a British and maybe possibly more broadly European, but I'll stick to to, to Great Britain in, in your perspective. How does how does the def- the, the the end of that sort of first attempt and then the reincarnation of it as a, I guess, mostly fully developmental league outside of the United States with all that crazy travel. How does the reinvention of this league and in particular the Monarchs and then by extension the, the Scottish Claymores, uh, how do you as a fan and how do the the rest of the American football fans uh, in the country sort of take to this sort of second attempt Uh, as the 90s were sort of progressing? Because the Premier League was certainly getting its branding uh, up to speed and was certainly kind of becoming more of a juggernaut that we know it now today to be.
1: Yeah, I think in general we felt this was the last throw of the dice for there being regular competitive football on these shores. And the problem was, was it felt so gimmicky when it came back. Um, you had the London Monarchs playing in certain soccer stadiums that were not configured correctly for American football. They, were the, they would have to make concessions over the fact, OK, it's the wrong width. Or, OK, this end zone is going to have to be shorter. That felt farcical. The uniforms in that first couple of, the first couple of seasons were ridiculous. You know, You could barely see the numbers. It was clearly Reebok were trying to do something very different personally i don't think it i don't think it worked but what the league did have at that point was really good tv coverage in the uk because sky sports were on board so every monarch's game and every claymore's game was live on tv which maybe was a good thing because i could watch any game that i wanted but did people think oh well i don't need to go to the games because i can watch it live i I don't know, but what we do know is that the crowds for the London Monarchs games were not good and the team was never good again. Um, fan attendance was was really up and down. Um, it never came close to the, the heights of the inaugural season and as the years went on, they just moved from stadium to stadium. Each time they moved, it would just be an even worse situation, an even lower grade stadium. And, you know, of course, they ended up just not being the London Monarchs. They became the England Monarchs and they played games around England. And at that point, they were just they were circling the drain. But initially there was optimism. And I I think you've got to give at the very least, the, the sort of people who were hardcore fans of the NFL in the mid '90s, you've got to give them credit. They they knew exactly what they were buying into. They knew it would be a development league, and they knew the upside of that. The idea of okay, well, I might see the stars of tomorrow, and I get to see people who are really busting a gut to try and catch on with an NFL team. They're really gonna you know they're really gonna go for it. So people did want to take to it, but. The Monarchs were just, they never really found an audience their second time around. The problem with London is is that if you want to do something in London, you can find it. You know, London has absolutely everything. So if you are telling people that, okay, this is a developmental league and it's playing in a Premier League soccer stadium, everything about it feels second rate, right? It's second rate to the NFL. It's second rate to the Premier League where, you know, that's what the sport that should be in that stadium they would have soccer players as kickers. They brought William Perry out to play for the London Monarchs. Everything just felt like it's a gimmick. I don't know how it's going to work. I hope it works. But maybe the success story is actually the Scottish Claymores. Because whereas the, the Monarchs were never able to um, get anywhere near their previous highs, they I mean, the history of that franchise were a dizzying high and then just terrible lows pretty much forever. The Scottish Claymores would kind of be up and down, but they developed a loyal, hardcore of fans. The crowds were never that big, but fans in Scotland were thrilled to get a team. It was never on the cards, and people I've spoken to, they still can't understand why a team was put in Scotland compared with some other places, but they were not going to argue. And the spirit of the Claymores still kind of lives on. Whereas when people think about the Monarchs in in the UK, they just think of that one season. They think of the one good season. They think of packed nights at Wembley and Stan Gelbor throwing touchdowns and winning a World Bowl. But the Claymore's fans think of sustained popularity and becoming a real part of the Scottish sports fabric because it's they were something like the fourth. Best-supported team in all of Scottish sports. You have got to remember, Scotland is a reasonably small country, and London is one of the biggest cities in the world. So, for the monarchs to get any attention in London was pretty much impossible at this point. You had too much else going on.
0: Well, you have Scottish pride too, right? I mean, the fact that it's it's domiciled there and and it's a way to uh, express its its regional uh, uh, strength, if you will, versus the the grander and or you know, uh, disliked UK uh, uh, combination, right? I mean, it, it gets into uh, centuries of, of of history in, in the yeah, region, right? But, it really but does. But it's it's yeah. a badge of honor, right? And, and it, it's um, uh, that, that's really interesting. So, do you would you would you characterize uh, that as? Um, uh, are there fan clubs still sort of circulating around that sort of memory set from uh, from the Scottish Claymores' existence?
1: There, there absolutely is. And people really look back on that era with such fondness um, that doesn't happen with the monarchs, the, that they considered to be they were a disaster. They were a joke. Whereas the Claymores really brought fans together. And I think I think you're right in the part of that is the idea of they were the Scottish Claymores. They were representing the entire country. Scotland is a very divided country when it comes to sports and I, I don't know how much your listeners will know of this but you know the two biggest scottish teams um in sports are the are the two soccer teams glasgow rangers and glasgow celtic and they suck the oxygen out of the room the whole scottish football league system is in thrall to these two clubs no club outside of that duopoly has been champions of scotland for decades so imagine how tedious that can get <laughs> and they get so much they get so much attention um that having something that wasn't celtic and rangers and their their divisions between um the fact that rangers is a protestant club a unionist club happy to be british and celtic a catholic club a republican club who will generally identify with irish republicanism it's complicated scottish sports can be messy because of the dominance of those two teams the scottish claymores had none of that and they played games in edinburgh they played games in glasgow and it was just we're nfl fans that's it we love the sport we're going to support the claymores they're our team they represent us in some way Um, the media did get behind them obviously you had lots of fans turning up in kilts and all this but there is still a lot of affection about the claymores there are some fans who when the claymores closed they were so disappointed by it that it put them off the sport and they've not gone back to the nfl i think they're in a minority i think most claymores fans look back on that as as a golden time that scotland was lucky to have a franchise lucky to have a team that won a world bowl got to another one that they lost there was a lot of camaraderie between not just fans of the same team but fans from other european teams so i think one of the things that really brought people together in the early days of the nfl in the uk was that a lot of people would make fun of the nfl like oh it's rugby with pads oh they it's just it's just big blokes hitting each other um it's boring they keep stopping whatever all these criticisms so if you were a fan of the chicago bears you would have more in common with a green bay packers fan who you might kind of hate during the course of the season you've got more in common with them than the people criticizing the sport so people did band together and the scottish claymores fans really came together and enjoyed their big road trips to other nfl europe teams and obviously it was kind of dominated by german teams both in terms of the number of teams in the league and the number of world bowls won but it was it was it was a big family You know, people would love to go go to these road games, experience a new city and heard from so many people where they just made lifelong friends in, say, Frankfurt or Amsterdam or Barcelona because they shared a love of this sport and they shared a love of that league. And everyone who would go to watch that league always knew that at the end of the season, they'd be keeping their fingers crossed that they were going to get another year. They always knew it was always on the bubble because it was never hugely successful, but never a total disaster. But for a lot of times, it was hard to tell what the NFL wanted out of the league. Was it purely a development league? Was it to promote interest in the NFL? Was it to sell merchandise? Was it all three? I don't think the NFL could ever fully settle on one of those things. And that was to the detriment of the league.
0: Well, all right. So that's a a very good segue into sort of the last sort of uh, uh, realm here of our our, our conversation. So in in getting into the 2000s, um, I'm really curious, and you sort of hinted at some of it, but can you sort of explain for the audience what the pure NFL uh, television uh, coverage and offerings were uh, in addition to whatever was existing on the uh, Europa side of things? Because I'm really curious to get a sense of Of fans understanding, and I gotta think that because both products were available on television, they could, they knew the difference between the real deal and the local but not so real deal on television.
1: I mean, it's, you could certainly tell the difference, but the people who loved the sport, they went with it because I don't think the product was bad. As such, it wasn't as good as college football. I would, I mean, a lot of these players would have been stars in college football. But in college football, those teams are together for so much longer. The games are more cohesive. It's a much better visual product. NFL fans, they just want to see more of the sport. So I think hardcore NFL fans were more than happy to watch the NFL Europe, even though it was a lesser product. It was still, it was still football to them and you had a point before the before the league closed where you would have say three live games on each week on sky sports in in nfl europe and then when the nfl season would start you would have live games on sky sports but also live games on terrestrial networks on free television and at, at that point the as the as nfl europe was starting to start to collapse under its own collective failures and the fact that it became so german that people outside germany started to lose interest it was basically a german-based league at that point that you had you had the situation where the nfl clearly already had in mind they wanted to launch the international series so at that point there was so much football so much football on our screens both terrestrial and satellite across those both leagues. It, it, it was another golden time. If if you wanted to be able to watch football almost year round, then you could.
0: But that then, I think, kind of led the NFL to kind of I don't know, rethink and maybe reattack the European marketplace and in London in particular with real games, right? No more exhibitions, but The idea of a regular season game uh, really kind of got off the ground in the mid 2000s to the point now where it's, you know, pretty fairly well integrated into the NFL schedule. Now we've got, you know, more than a few games happening in in London and or England proper.
1: Yeah. And I'm I'm lucky. I don't know how many people can say this. I've been to every single game in London. I think there's been 33. I'm surprised Um, you're not a Jacksonville
0: Jaguars fan then.
1: (laughs) Oh, I think when you've watched the Jacksonville Jaguars enough times, you are definitely not a fan of theirs. It just seems like you're always the one
0: sent out to London to go play.
1: Yeah, they, I mean, they have, so it's, um, it's interesting because um, international series games in London are handled a little bit like the Super Bowl in that the NFL events team who handle the Super Bowl also put on those games. And for the first time, there was a game last year where the NFL didn't run the show and it was a jacksonville jaguars home game and they've had lots of quote-unquote home games in london but for the first time they ran the show and they could do it however they wanted and to the to the general public you wouldn't kind of see that difference but just behind the scenes it was done differently and i think we'll see the jaguars do that once a season but it's the fact that the nfl at that point was thinking that they needed to put games in Europe and obviously it took a long time for it to be anywhere other than London. um, And we've still only ever had one actually take place outside London. And that that was the game in Germany last year. Um, The, the idea of the, the NFL wanting a development league, it then started to kind of fall a bit flat because if the point of the league was for development, then why not carry it on? And it was then that I started to feel that this was a promotional tool. And because the product wasn't up to par that the NFL thought we need to pull the plug because maybe this is giving the sort of person who just turns on the TV and and isn't an NFL fan already and they see it, they might think this sport isn't very good because they're seeing a low-quality version of it. If you're a huge NFL fan, you might want to watch any kinds. In the same way, in college football, there's that group called the Sickos Committee where they just want to watch the worst college games just to be able to see everything. I think a lot of NFL fans in the UK were like that. We will watch any of it. But if you were just browsing through the channels and perhaps you see a a one and five Amsterdam admirals against a a two and four Scottish claymores and you watch some of that, you might think, I'm not interested in this. Whereas if you see a proper NFL game, maybe you will. So the death of the league coincided with the start of the NFL International Series, which has put us in a position now where an NFL franchise is feasible. I know for a fact it's been talked about a lot in the NFL headquarters. And despite the, the focus on Germany for NFL Europe, in part because of all the U.S. Um, military bases in Germany, um, the, the Germans are probably bigger into the NFL than the British are, which might seem strange when you think of all the games that have been held uh, here in London. But the NFL wanted simplicity. It was a very hard sell for them to convince NFL owners, uh, NFL team owners, to play games in London. And at the at the very least, they could say to them, "Look, there's no language barrier, and flying to London is straightforward, and it's a world class city. And everything they've done, like they have a base hotel in Marlebon in London, where that's where NFL executives will be based, because there's a train you can get direct from Marlebon straight to Wembley Stadium." everything is to try and keep things as simple as possible because there were so many naysayers within the nfl who just felt we don't need to expand to europe we're fine there's plenty of money to be made here in the you know here in here in the states nfl europe was a failure but there was enough vision in the nfl to know that if anything i would say the nfl could become less popular in the u.s as concussions get worse and all those sorts of things. There's, I don't know how much growth the NFL's got in the US, obviously, but has massive potential in Europe. And I'm not sure NFL Europe showed them that, but the fact that NFL Europa closed and the international series started, for me, feels that there is a through point there, that one did lead to the other. And this one's going to be around a lot longer in that league
0: well i'm gonna age us both right i mean the the nfl europe and nfl europa uh all that that lineage right that's almost 20 years ago now right so it seems like it was kind of almost like yesterday or at least the beginnings of it was almost 30 years ago right um and this nfl international series right which got going uh in earnest uh around that time starting in london only recently has expanded uh into mexico and, and even um and more recently now into Germany, right? So if there if there are two or three teams to be thought of as legit expansion teams, if you will, in the proper league, I mean, you got to think that that London, uh, somewhere in Mexico, probably Mexico City and perhaps somewhere in Germany are probably the the leading uh, uh, candidates for that. But um, I, I guess there's sort of two questions sort of I've got there uh, or, or or things for you to opine upon. Number one, I guess, is, and maybe you kind of hinted at it, uh, does any of this success and specialness of these games and, and regular season and count and and meaningful at that, which is kind of cool, um, warrant uh literally an expansion team, an actual franchise, or is it enough, frankly, just to be international hosts for regular season games in the league as it's currently construed? Um I, where do you sort of sit on that? Do you think a franchise is, is needed or is this kind of enough and you just sort of make it an expanded, I guess, uh, special event kind of thing when, with traveling teams coming to visit and play a real game?
1: I think my dream would be for instead of there being a, an expansion team or a relocated team playing its home games in London, I would rather just be able to have eight, eight games in London every season. And I'd love it if it was eight eight games with 16 different teams. And the idea would be that over the course of two seasons, you would see all 32 teams in London. I think that would prove more popular than bringing a team. Um, I don't think, like, it was clearly felt by the NFL um, back in the late 80s, early 90s, that the exhibition games were not cutting it and that the market needed something else. The market needed regular season games, and we have those regular season games. Does the market need its own team? I would say no. And the reason I would say that is because the, you know, those, those games sell out within minutes. You've only got to go on Twitter the mornings that those games go on sale to see people complaining about how they have clicked to go and buy the tickets the second they go on sale. And it says, you are number 500,000 in the queue. And they don't get close to a ticket. Those people are hardcore NFL fans for the most part, and they've got their teams. So I would end up, if there was a team in London, I'd probably end up in that press box um, covering that London team every single home game. But I'm a Chicago Bears fan, and I would want that London team to do well. But if it was the London whoever's against the Chicago Bears, I'm probably rooting for the Chicago Bears. And I would say that's the case for. 85% 85% of the fans who are going to those games, they would not attach themselves as much to a London team as they currently do to their, to their own team. Those people are big, big fans. But maybe for another generation, maybe the, the kids who are going with their parents, maybe, maybe they would. But I don't think the market needs it. I don't think it's that the NFL will start to lose its popularity unless there's a London team. If anything, it could be the opposite, because if you create a London team and it does poorly, then you've got a problem because then you are you've got a, you've got a market feeling that they are being given a poor quality product. And it can be hard to get people to buy into a new team. And maybe it's different if you're, you know, when when um, when the NFL expanded into um, Carolina and into Jacksonville those those places would have had um uh teams beamed into their homes in in those markets you know if you i guess if you're in jacksonville you were getting buccaneers games i i kind of get it more there but in london we've got all our different teams you know when you go to a, a game in london you will see i was going to say you'll see all 32 teams you'll see more than that because you'll see you'll see the Oilers jerseys you'll see monarchs jerseys you'll see claymore jerseys you'll see all the nfl europe jerseys because uh the the germans really travel to come to these games we've all got our own teams and i don't think it's needed um whether it happens i don't know but i don't think it's needed and the other
0: question there though is and i'd love to hear your perspective sort of as a as a rounding out of, of our uh, this conversation, which has been great, by the way. Um, I think over the last especially 10 years, and with the, I think, the discovery or the arrival of private equity into pro sports ownership, um, we're now seeing kind of the globalization not only of sports, but of ownership, uh, uh, almost like a collection of teams kind of thing, right? So Man City, you know, uh, at least on the soccer front, uh, owning, say, NYCFC here in Major League Soccer and and the team in Melbourne and, you know, kind of sort of being this, if you will, city conglomerate. Um, but also, you know, that's also expanded into multi-sports, right, which, you know, 10, 15, even 20 years ago, it was heresy, right, And restricted, right, where uh, the NFL in particular was very, very defensive about uh, having ownership in any other sport and vice versa, um, but now you've got, you know, people like the Stan Kroenke's Stan of the world, right? Uh, or the Glazers or the, you know, uh, 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 the, uh, the Shaikh Khans of the world, right? Who own uh, teams in not only the NFL, but also in, say, the Premier League and that kind of stuff. Um, I guess the question in there is, is it kind of inevitable, perhaps, given this cross ownership and this fast-moving and fast privatized investment uh strategy it seems of owning multiple teams in multiple countries that the NFL and pro football would become more rooted uh and more constant beyond just a handful of regular season um, uh, circus games shall we say uh and 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 deepen ties somehow because of all of that
1: I can, I can certainly see that you know, being an NFL owner is a very exclusive and lucrative and prestigious club, and I can imagine there would be lots of people who would be more than happy to put up the money for a London franchise and make potentially a whole lot of money, a whole lot of money from it. The whole kind of cross-ownership thing really is just starting to get very messy um, from my point of view. Um, and, and this is just this is just an aside, but this is something that I've been thinking about a lot. Where so at the moment, as we as we speak right now, Tom Brady is at a Birmingham City soccer match, where he as he was unveiled recently as the as a new investor in Birmingham City Football Club. Now, no money was revealed about this, and it does make me feel that it's a little bit like the deal. That Ryan Reynolds has with Alpine Formula One team, where he was given equity in the team for free in return for his constant promotion and everything that he can do to raise the profile of that team. And to me, the Tom Brady thing feels a little bit like that. I feel that um you've got you've got people like um like TJ Watts and um AJ Watts, sorry, TJ Watt and um Tom Brady buying in, quote unquote buying in to English soccer. Because there's potential money to be made there Um, and you've got 49ers Enterprises who own Leeds United it seems it's that that is one of the ones that I find the strangest to me 49ers Enterprises is the San Francisco 49ers I mean it's their kind of investment offshoot but they own a soccer club here as well so it's not just these um these these owners like Shad Khan who are you know, wanting to wanting as different 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 pies in different places to get pieces of, I I just wonder if the U.S. owners, because it's a lot of U.S. money uh, coming into English soccer for obvious reasons, that whether they want to just keep that separate, whether it's not in their interests to have an NFL franchise competing with what they're doing. So I, I my 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 feeling is is that they don't want that. But wherever there's money to be made, some people are going to go for it. And well, I'm sure that if there is, if there's going to be an NFL franchise in London, it's going to have to happen in the next 10 years. The time, the time is coming now where they're going to have to make a decision. And I think it's a risky decision. And it's probably one that will, you know, we've had 40 years of NFL coverage here in the UK now but that might be the the one decision that defines the sport in this country more than any other.
0: Yeah, I mean look, I money in sports is is an intriguing history. Um I I you know, and I I this moment in time to me feels very bubbly. Uh, especially with private equity money in particular and we know how private equity does its bidding. Um and the the valuations have only gone up and relatively astronomically as an asset class. I'm not sure that this uh it's a hockey stick growth uh, sign upward forever. Um, and I'm also, frankly, worried for what it's worth um, from a competition perspective. Right, Gambling in the United States, which is now legal, uh, you know, on a state by state level and is just kind of taking over and stuff. I What could go wrong there? I mean, that's something that the U.S. had <laughs> largely kind of walled off against over time. But but. And I know now, and say in the UK, for example, or in in the Premier League, you know, they're pulling back on 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 uh, branding, you know, uh, of those uh, sports books and stuff, and uh, from from the stadiums and stuff. So there's a bit of an overhang. But I worry about sort of from a competition perspective, right? When you've got multiple uh, minority ownerships, if you will, of teams, uh, sometimes in different leagues and that kind of stuff. And and uh, the bigger that that gets, I think the more complicated life gets when you know there's cross uh, european uh, competition or you know it's it's a same owner versus same owner uh, if you will in in and the purity i guess i and i don't want to sort of lament but you know i worry about the integrity of the games plural uh, as that ownership becomes more intertwined and or uh, global shall we say and multi bordered
1: no, you're absolutely right. Because it's not like it's not like somebody owning an NFL franchise, an NHL franchise, a Major League Baseball franchise, and an NBA franchise. They don't they don't need to worry about those teams ever coming up against each other. But you have brands like Red Bull who started buying up teams through Europe, renaming them. Of course, you had you had it in MLS. You've had it in MLS as well um, with the New York Red Bulls. So there have been matches taking place in European competition where say a team from germany um sponsored by red bull is playing well not sponsored by owned by red bull is playing a team in austria owned by red bull and that's where it's it's very messy and i don't i don't like it um and i'm not sure if anything can be done about it. i feel like that toothpaste is not going back into the tube and i think it's probably something that's only going to get worse and it's it's one of the things i would like about i like about the nfl is that for all my issues with various owners, at the very least, they're not owning multiple teams in the NFL
0: yet. And it'll be interesting to sort of see, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, look, look, look how the NFL has changed its position on gambling in such a short period of time. Some of that's reflective of sports broadly in the United States, but the NFL is probably the most vigilant, and and there's some cracks in that armor. But, you know, you said it before, money, right? And money and growth, right? There is limited growth, if any, in the United States, right? It has to be in, uh, and, you know, compromises might be made. Uh, the Saudis with putting money in all kinds of different things. So, uh, you know, it, it, uh, here's my last question for you, though. Are you still a fan? And, and ha- how, do you, how do you stay a fan, given some of those unavoidable issues that are at least looming in the background?
1: Um, I am very much still a fan um there have been lots of things that have that have tested my fandom um partly whenever you have any kind of professional connection with a sport you can start to like lose your love of the game um but for for me my greatest kind of crisis as a fan was um when dave duerson um who was on the 85 chicago bears team when he uh, took his own life, and it was the for me it was the the fact that concussions more than likely created that situation, and that when I was there as a kid rewatching and rewatching and rewatching bears games that I would tape on VHS or my copy of the bears eighty five season that I literally wore out the videotape that uh, am I part of the problem and It's it's that sort of guilt more than the money side in the NFL, because I feel that the NFL is cleaner in that regard than soccer is. And soccer is something where that's something I find it harder and harder to be a fan. I think the closer you are and the more you see of it all in Europe, at least, the less attractive it becomes. I kind of wish I could watch the games and not know anything that was going on and have blissful ignorance, but it doesn't work like that. And everything that goes off, goes, goes on off the field in soccer, in this country and through other parts of Europe, whether it's PSG being bankrolled by shady money or whatever, it's, there are, the way that the way that money is ruining soccer, that's something where I find it hard to be a fan. With the NFL, I'm not so bothered.
0: Interesting dichotomy there. Um, all right, time to promote uh, book, uh, socials, uh, any other stuff? Um, how people can find out more about you and it? Uh, lay it on me.
1: Um, so you can find me on Twitter at tweets from Ben. Um, I'm still calling it Twitter and I'm certainly not going to change my handle tweets from Ben. The book is called the American football revolution, how Britain fell in love with the NFL. Um, If you're listening in the U S you can get that on Kindle in a couple of weeks. Um, The hardcover release will be out in December. So just in time for Christmas, you can pre-order it on amazon um i'm not sure where else but definitely amazon um if you're listening in the uk because i've promoted this then you can get it on amazon uk and lots of other booksellers and the hardcover is out in august um it was such an exciting thing to do nobody has written a book about nfl fandom in the uk and it's 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 a chronological history of fandom in the UK but what I decided to do was each chapter focused on a different person's story and what that told us about the greater story and how they how it all comes together um and it's just it's a it's a passion project of mine I love talking about the history of the NFL and I've spent a lot of time writing and broadcasting about the NFL but this is the thing that I'm most excited about and I and Tim I must thank you so much for having me on this is this is the sort of conversation that I absolutely love to have both on and offline. So thank you.
0: All righty. Then the book must get fun read the American football revolution. How Britain fell in love with the NFL from our guest this week, Ben Isaacs. It is published by our pals at pitch.com publishing. It is available for pre-order right this very moment uh, on Amazon or through our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com Just search up this episode number 314 with Ben Isaacs and you will find a convenient link to that Amazon pre-order page for hardcover or Kindle version. We'll also throw up there a uh, link to the UK version of Amazon where you can get more quickly as in now the book. Uh, from a U.K. mailing source. So uh, if you want the book immediately, you just click on the uh, U.K. Uh, Amazon link. Uh, if you can handle waiting a little bit and getting it through the U.S. version of the website at Amazon, you will uh, find a convenient link for that, too. Either way, get the book. You will enjoy it. If you consider yourself a football fan and you're even more curious about the uh, uh, the interesting history of the American football game uh, in Uh, And Britain and um, Ben can also be followed on social media uh, on Twitter uh, slash X, whatever they're calling it this week. Uh, His handle there is at tweets from Ben at tweets from Ben. It's all one word. Uh, Follow us on social media. I dare you. Uh, We are also on the X slash Twitter platform at Good Seats Still. You'll find us also on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you will also find us on um, on threads at Good Seats Still. And uh, you will find us on Facebook uh, as well, in addition, uh, additionally, too, <laughs> at Good Seats Still Available. Um, If uh, you want to follow us there, Uh, you can also, again, visit early and often our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. All of our episodes are posted there. You can stream them there and stuff. Of course, the best way to get the show is to simply subscribe or follow us wherever you get podcasts. We are just about everywhere you can find podcasts. And however you choose to consume them, you can get them. Uh, If you cannot find them where you podcast, please let us know. Uh, Our email address uh, for that and other things is hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com Pretty simple. And uh, our thanks to our great friend, Jerry Payne, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence, uh, a tip of the, um, I don't know, the, the, uh, the, the baseball slash football slash whatever cap uh, in your general direction. Thank you for your kind and hearty work this week. And uh, thank you for sticking around As we uh, take a few as we took a few weeks off and uh, we've got a whole bunch of things coming your way as the fall progresses. We hope uh, you're safe and sound and enjoying the last days of summer and we will see you. God bless until next week. Thanks for listening and take care until then. Bye.